We want to be a church that is pursuing God in the Bible. Pursuing God in the Bible. And so today we're going to think about pursuing God in the Bible together, funnily enough, because the series is Loving God Together. And we're going to go to a story in the Old Testament, a moment in time that is a really exciting moment where God's people gathered together and responded to God's word. Okay, before we get to that, let me just uh, introduce the talk with, with uh, an image. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen one of these things close up, but one of the most impressive things you'll see in this world, either uh, you know, in person or on television, whatever, is technically, I believe, one of the, the tallest, longest, biggest living things on the planet. It's called a redwood tree. And if you were to fly eight time zones west, get to the west coast of the USA, to California, where Dave and Jenny were for six months last year, remember when we were crying and they were there. Uh, so uh, if you go north of LA, go right the way up to northern California, past the, well, to the Bay Area and north, you come to the part of the country, the part of the planet, where you'll find coastal redwoods. Now the amazing thing about the coastal redwoods is that they are the tallest trees in the world. They, I say easily, I'm sure it's not easy for them, but they easily grow uh, two to 300 feet. In fact, the tallest is almost 400 feet tall. Just to try and get our heads around that, that's about a 30 plus story building. Which again, just to get our heads around that, in England and Wales, outside of London, there are only three places with buildings that are that tall. Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool. Not Leeds, Birmingham, Liverpool. You go around Bristol, Swindon, all the great buildings of Chippenham, you're getting nowhere near a coastal redwood. Almost 400 feet tall. It's, 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 um, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? They're quite impressive at the, the bottom, the bit where you can get close to them. And, and if you remember your botany classes, your science classes at school, you'll know that for what you see above the ground, there's always something under the ground, right? And so maybe you remember pictures of a tree above the ground and then underground the the root network kind of being just almost like a reflection of the tree. What do you imagine the roots are like on a coastal redwood? I mean, just, just think about it. These trees rising close to 400 feet, weighing over 1,000 tons, living for over 1,000 years. They're, they're up that western coast of the USA where you've got the Pacific Ocean literally just a handful of miles away. Uh, and all of the weather and the water and the wind and everything that comes in from the biggest ocean on the planet, what kind of roots must those trees have in order to survive over a thousand years and grow to that kind of a height? You may be surprised to discover that their roots do not go down more than five or six feet, typically. That's like this. How in the world does a tree grow super tall with roots like this, like this deep? I mean, they go wide. The answer is that they go wide and they intertwine. And so what you won't find typically is a coastal redwood on its own. You'll have them in clumps. They'll be there together because together they're connected below the surface and therefore they're able to stand no matter what anything, uh, anything nature throws at them. Humans are very good at destroying them. Uh, and I know someone here who'd love to have a go at one of them. But, but, you know, they've lasted for centuries. Apart from humans, there would still be a whole lot more of them. And I was thinking about coastal redwoods in terms of this series because one of the things that you start to notice uh, as you live 
in the church for a while and you watch people come to faith in Christ, it's always exciting, isn't it? When, when, when the, the lights go on and somebody is like, whoa, Jesus died for me. And it, like, suddenly they realize it's, it's real, it's personal, the spirit's working in them. And, and they trust and they you know, place their faith in Jesus. It's always a thrilling moment. But what you get to realize after a while is that what happens next is really important. And as a a kind of a more seasoned Christian, you start to watch and you pray for people as they come to faith in Christ because there's a couple of things that need to follow that decision, that moment in time. They need to get their roots down into God's word and they need to get connected with God's people. I've never seen a Christian grow without being in God's word. I've never seen a, a new Christian ignore the Bible and ignore the church in any meaningful way and then just go really, you know, grow for Jesus and do great. It, sadly, it doesn't work that way. We've got to get our roots into his word and we've got to get our lives intertwined with one another. And I suppose, just to push the analogy, one of the encouraging things about the Redwoods is this, that they don't have to have the deepest roots on the planet to grow like they do. And I, I don't want to offend anyone by saying this, but, but this community right here, we're not the brightest and the best. I, I've met people that, that what they know about the Bible is infinitely greater than what we know put together. It's like, you know, we, we might say, oh, you know, I'm not as clever as so-and-so, I'm not as studious as so-and-so, I'm terrible at this, I'm not so good at that. And it's easy for us to think, well, I'm not, I'm not really impressive. But the reality is, that if we, if we can get our roots down into God's word, even just a bit, but then sideways we intertwine and entangle our lives with each other, the reality is that we're strong from that. We don't have to have the deepest taproot on the planet. We don't have to have a root that plums the depths of the Aramaic subtexts of the Bible. It's good to study. It's good to know God's word. But the reality is that together, reading God's word, studying it, connecting with it, there's a strength. And I would rather have the strength of this community than a greater brain and a greater amount of degrees and a greater amount of knowledge and be alone. The coastal redwoods never stand alone. They always stand together. And that's what we need. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at an occasion in the Bible where God's people came together and responded to God's word. And we're going to see that there are four characteristics of a community loving God together or pursuing God in his word together. It's in the book of Nehemiah. It's, uh, if you've got a church Bible, page 403. And uh, if you don't, then it's on a different page. All right, page 403, Nehemiah chapter 8. Famous passage. Let me just set the scene for us. We're kind of jumping into the middle of a story. This is before Jesus, several centuries before Jesus. The nation of Israel had been chosen by God. They were his his people, his uh, people that had been given the word, given the scriptures. They were uh, very privileged in lots of ways. And and for the longest time, they'd been in the land of of Israel. They'd lived there, but then they'd been taken out of the land. It's kind of the, uh, almost the, the humiliating disappointment at the end of the Old Testament. After all the promises and all the expectation, God's people get exiled, taken away for almost a century. 
And so they're in this foreign country, kind of despairing or maybe hoping, trusting, dreaming, whatever. But they're in this foreign country and then God makes it possible for some at least to come back to the promised land. And so in our Old Testaments, there are six books that are written in that time after they return to the promised land. One of them is focused on action over in the exile zone, but the other five are focused on the the land, on the people where they are. We've got the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we've got three minor prophets in that time. And largely in that time, it's kind of disappointing. They've come back, but not all of them. They've rebuilt the temple eventually, but it's not very impressive. There's a lot of stuff that isn't really what it should be. And so in the midst of all of that that's going on, you've got these minor prophets, as we call them, who are anticipating and pointing forward and saying, hey, God is still going to do what he always promised to do. This isn't it. This is just an interim. And so they were in the land and they'd been back in the land for almost a century when Nehemiah heard from over in the exile zone, he heard that the city walls of Jerusalem were broken down, that the city was in a a very vulnerable state. And so he left a very privileged position to come back and to lead a building project. And you can read the book of Nehemiah, it might take you an hour to read it through, and it's a fascinating story of how he got the people to work together, and together they built the walls, and the city was kind of protected again, and they did it in a remarkably quick time, and it's, it's kind of exciting. But then you come to chapter 8, and this is where it gets incredibly exciting, because in chapter 8 they come together and they respond to God's word. So let me read it to you, I'll read the first eight verses of chapter eight and then uh, like I said show us four characteristics of God's people pursuing God in the Bible responding to God's word so Nehemiah chapter eight starting at verse one and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose and beside him stood... And there's a whole bunch of names there, and I'm not going to read them. I'll let you memorize those later. People on his left and on his right hand. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, there's another list of names, a group of Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Kind of picture that, I think in terms of a crowd of tens of thousands of people. A huge crowd, like a football stadium crowd of people gathered together. And they come together to hear 
the word of God. Did you notice how long that went on for? From the beginning of the day through to midday. That's about six hours. I just want to point that out. Six hours, just in case you're ever feeling like our service is a little bit long. Six hours. Six hours. That's a serious length of time. We're not going to learn from that and copy it, but I just want to make sure you notice it. If we ever creep, you know, three minutes late, sorry, but it's not six hours. I mean, these people were together for six hours. So let me give you some characteristics of the people of God pursuing God and responding to God's word. First of all, they all gathered together to hear it. And they gathered respectfully. You could even say they gathered eagerly. They came together to hear it, men and women and everyone who could understand it. It wouldn't be... Uh, in a sense, surprising to have Ezra the priest kind of off to the side in a little room with some Levites saying, here, the the people aren't used to God's word. Let me just give it to you and then you can kind of go out and, and lead the people. But no, these people are hungry. They're eager to come together. They all want to hear it. Male, female, old and young. The Bible, God's words for everybody. And so they've come together. Notice the the respect that they show it. We've got, for example, in in verse 1, all of them come together. Down in verse 4, there's a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So they had prepared. They'd said, look, we've got to be able to see and hear especially. Let's have a platform. We need to get some guys to build a platform. And so they built this platform so that Ezra could stand on it. Verse 5, when he opened the book, all the people stood. Imagine just that, the tens of thousands of people, oh, it's God's word, and they all stood together. And then when he blessed God, the next verse tells us their cry was, amen, amen. There's a, there's a, a responsiveness among these people because they respect, at this point in time, they're respecting God's word and they're excited to hear it. It sort of reminds me a little bit of of the book of Acts where Paul is traveling from place to place and there's just this little passing reference about the Bereans. This is, you know, much later. but, but, But Paul went from Thessalonica and he came to Berea and in Acts 17 it says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because when the word of God was preached to them, they received it eagerly. They listened eagerly and then they also checked the Bible to make sure that what was said was true. Different era, they had scriptures, different situation. But that eagerness, it's like Nehemiah 8, isn't it? Always reading God's word, let's stand and listen. I feel a little bit challenged by that, don't you? That here we are now in a time where we've got Bibles all over the place. We've got Bibles on our phones, we've got Bibles on the internet, we've probably got lots of Bibles next to the bed and on shelves. I started counting Bibles in my study this morning, decided to give up because I was feeling convicted. I mean, just we've got such easy access. We've got Bibles that we can buy very, very cheaply. We've got Bibles that are in our language, multiple different versions of it. I mean, if there's ever been a people that have easy access to the Bible, it's us. But does that equate to having the same level of respect as we see here? How easy it is to just kind of go to church and switch off when the Bible's read. Or not bother because something else is going on that, that maybe seems more important. Or, you know, there's, there's lots of ways of, of kind of avoiding it. 
and, and sort of treating it as common or treating it as normal. And somehow, when in my mind, in my imagination, when that crowd stands to hear God's word and they're excited to hear it, there's eagerness, there's respect, it seems like they're prepared for something. I want that to be true for me too. I want to have that same attitude about coming together to hear God's word, coming to life group to discuss God's word, as well as all the opportunities I have on my own. If the people of God are going to pursue God in the Bible, we need, to, we need to prepare ourselves to hear it. We need to be eager and respectful and ready to hear what God's word says. But I want you to notice the second characteristic here, and that is there's this phrase that keeps getting repeated. It's not enough just to hear it. Here's a classic old church phrase that some of you will have, uh, will have heard o- over the years. That you know, We pray sometimes in a church I grew up in, pray for people to come under the sound of the gospel. It sounds quite weird, doesn't it, when you think about it? Under the sound of the gospel. Like there's the gospel floating around here, and ooh, we're under the sound of it. I know what, what's meant by that, but, but, but here's the thing. It's not enough just to have the words coming. Notice what it says here in verse 2. The men and the women and all who could understand what they heard. Verse 3. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Down to verse 7. You've got the long list of the Levite names. And they helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places. In verse 8. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Sneak down to verse 12. End of verse 12, they did something because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The word of God is not some kind of magic charm that, that you, know, you come to church and the sermon is preached and then you're somehow better off for having been there. Sort of like one of those phone chargers that if your phone gets close enough, it just kind of woo, charges and then it can carry on again without having to plug in, you know, as if by... Some sort of weird modern magic, right? That's not how God's word works. I mean, it'd be great if it did, because we could just put our phones on at a very low volume, go to sleep, and just have it playing, you know, eight hours a day. Surely we'd be so spiritual if, if it was that simple. Feel free to try it. I don't think it helps particularly. But you see, it's not enough to hear it. Nehemiah 8 says we need to understand it. And specifically, what we have here is not just the need to understand, but but God's people being helped to understand. Do you notice the job of the Levites? There's Ezra on the platform, and he's reading out the books of Moses, the law of God, and then these Levites are, are, are amongst the people. Okay, did you catch everything he said? Yeah. Any questions? Yeah, I don't get that bit. Okay, let me explain that bit to you. Are you happy? Okay, we're all happy. Everyone happy? Okay, keep going. And then Ezra goes on to the next bit. Okay, did you, I didn't get the point of that thing about the whole, you know, the, the goat in its mother's milk. Nor did I. Hang on. Hey, goat in the mother's milk thing. Okay, we've got an answer. Okay, do you get it now? Good. Right, Ezra, keep going. And for six hours, the word of God is being read and the people are being helped to understand it. That's why we don't just read the Bible on Sundays. You may have noticed that. We also have messages, right? We have someone who spends time during the week praying and preparing and trying to understand the passage so that then when we all look at the passage, we can hopefully be helped to understand. 
That's why in life groups, we don't just read a passage and say, got it, right, move on. We discuss it. In different format, different environment, we help each other to understand it. If we're going to be a community of people that are responsive to God's word, we need to hear it and we need to understand it. And notice there's no exceptions there. There's no kind of, and the bright ones understood it, or the academic ones understood it, or the people who were studious understood it. No, it was, they all understood it. And therefore, something happens. So those are the first two characteristics of God's people responding to God's word. There is a respectful hearing of it, and then there's help to understand it. And then we come to the next paragraph. Let me read this to you and we'll see the next two. These kind of these numbers three and four build, if you like, on one and two. Verse nine. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, don't worry about all these details if it's unfamiliar. And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So there's two things going on here. In verse uh, 9, we've got this explanation where it says, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then through the whole paragraph, we've got Nehemiah and Ezra and everyone else saying, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. How do you put that together? Well, actually, what we've got here are two things that happen when God's people get into God's word. When we read it, when we have help to understand it, what we discover is that it profoundly moves us. God's word, it, sometimes it's like, a, it's like a spotlight shining into the kind of dark, uh, kind of hidden corners and recesses of our soul. And the light shines in and we go, oh, what a mess I am. But then we've also got this joy thing going on. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's a phrase you may have heard. And you think, oh, that's great. Let's have more of that. And what we tend to do is we think, right, if I can avoid the, you know, feeling bad about sin stuff, then I can have the joy of the Lord, right? I can just, let's just skip the, let's just skip the conviction, the deeply moved, the weeping. Let's just avoid that. And let's just enjoy the good stuff. That's not how it works. God's word consistently we find throughout the Bible that there's this sense in which God shines a light into us to help us realize what a mess our lives are, just how far we've rebelled, just how far we've gone, just, just how far astray we are from what we were created for. And, and, and it, it, it kind of shines a light in. And if we dare to see that and dare to receive it, we'll, we'll be moved by it. We'll be like, whoa, this is terrible. And we tend to think that that's bad news and we just want to avoid that. Let's just, you know, let's just celebrate the good stuff. But actually, that's the pathway to the good stuff. 
Ever since the beginning of human history, we've been living in rebellion against God. We've been saying, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to live life my way. And I can do life. And God, by his spirit, speaks to us and says, hey, you can't. Without me, you're a mess. Without me, you messed up. And and we know that we do. And we think we can kind of bypass the acknowledgement of that and just kind of celebrate and have the joy of the Lord because God's nice and he'll forgive everyone. And we come up with this kind of nice version of God and we discover that it's incredibly disappointing. It doesn't sustain us, doesn't work. It's not what the Bible teaches. Let me, let me try to picture this for us. Imagine if, if you can... Not, not this hall. I mean, this hall's amazing. But think of a really amazing hall, like a banquet hall fit for royalty. All right? Just incredibly like warm, inviting, all the tables just overflowing with all the best and the finest foods. I, I don't know what you'd want to be in the feast of the finest foods. Uh, there's got to be chocolate, right? So I'll just throw chocolate into the mix. The, whether it's cake or whether it's chocolate, actual chocolate, chocolate, whatever it is, it's got to be the best chocolate, right? It, you know, Cadbury's maybe, but maybe a bit better. All right, no galaxy for me. It's got to be dairy milk. It's, you know, there's, there's standards. We've got to talk about them, right? And so maybe those, what are those around Lindor? Like just a massive overflowing fountain of Lindor. Okay, that's my contribution. What would you put in the finest feast that you can imagine? Feel free to, to not be into chocolate. Anyone else? Ferrero Rocher, yes. Pretending to be French, but actually Italian. That is brilliant chocolate. Yeah, what else? Who else has like, lots of that? We need like big pyramids, like on the adverts back in the day. Yeah, People walking around with trays of Ferrero Rocher. What else? Come on, you must be hungry by now. Ice cream, anyone for ice cream? Italian ice cream, maybe American, Baskin Robbins, whatever. Yeah, uh, anything else? <laughs> a table for haggis, for the, the three or four that would like that. Yeah, anything else? Fruit salad, I'm going to say that for my mum because she's a long way away. She'd love a fruit salad, so a beautiful, like, stunning fruit salad. What else would you put in a great feast? The, say again? Ribs. Apologies to the vegetarians, but ribs, all right? Uh, actual proper ribs, well-cooked and easy to eat with some napkins to you know, clean up your fingers. Yorkshire, Becky's Yorkshire pudding. Yes, I think we could all agree if you've ever had it, that's the one you want. A nice huge tray of Becky's Yorkshire pudding, which therefore means beef and gravy and potatoes and all of that stuff. My wife's roast potatoes. And so you put all that together. Imagine a royal banquet with the best of the best food that you can possibly like your favorite meats your favorite vegetables your favorite desserts your favorite drinks you know like orange squash or like champagne or or you know your favorite tea with two sugars whatever your thing is you know wines and and so on just the best that the that has ever been made imagine that banquet and then there's a door And you approach, you can smell it, you can see it, you can hear it, you want it. And you get to the door and the people on the door, the guards, not the friendly welcome like we forgot to have today. But like the the, the guards at the door, they say, oh, you're very welcome. Uh, And you say, great, I'm very hungry. And they go, great, now confess your sin. And you go, what? Why would I want to do that? Well, confess your sin because this is a feast that God has prepared and he wants you to enjoy it. 
But the way to have what God wants you to have has always been humility. It's always been to say, hey, I don't deserve this. God, would you forgive me? Would you? And so just confess your sin and come on in. And so what do we do? We say, well, isn't there another entrance? Isn't there like another, another way in? I'm sure I could get through that window. I might not be able to get out through the window after I eat in there, but surely I could. No, no, this is the entrance. And so what do we do? We kind of settle outside. We, we set up a card table. And we come up with the best feast we can come up with. You know, like a little packet of six cakes like you get in a corner store and they've been there for three years after their date. You know, like all preservatives and no actual ingredients. And then a bag of crisps that's been opened for about four months and a a packet of rich tea biscuits that's been on a a plate for like two and a half years, just soft and ooh, and a glass of milk that's been warmed all day and just kind of growing things on it. I mean, that's the kind of feast that we come up with, isn't it? in comparison to what God wants to give us. And we go, that's all right. I'm going to have the joy of the Lord be my strength. And we sit down at the card table and go, isn't God good? And we kind of try to enjoy this nothing meal when there's the everything feast waiting for us. That's kind of the the contrast of what we need to get with these two principles, that we don't get to have the access to all that God wants for us on our terms. We don't get to swagger our way in saying, I've got it all together and I'm pretty good and I'm not as bad as some people. No, the way into what God has for us has always been the way of humility. The way that says, I don't deserve anything. In fact, I deserve the exact opposite. And God says, I know you do and I've I've made a way for you to come on in. Go for it. Hey guys, dessert first, whatever you want. Like you, you can enjoy it all. He makes a way for us to come in. And so what we've got here is these two things side by side. The, the, the bad news, if you like, the conviction of sin. They're reading God's word. They're hearing God's word read and they're just weeping because they're like, oh, we've fallen so far away. And then you've got the leaders saying, yes, but, but the joy of the Lord is your strength. How how, how does that make sense? Well, the the thing is, you may have missed it, but this was the first day of the seventh month. And I think they might have missed it, except for the fact that it was then pointed out to them that the first day of the seventh month is one of the great Jewish feasts, Rosh Hashanah. This is the Jewish New Year celebration, bizarrely, in the seventh month. And they have this uh, feast of trumpets, and and, and it's like, okay, guys, today's a feast day, and if we're going to be taking God's word seriously, then let's celebrate. And then the passage goes on. Verse 18, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They want more of this teaching from God's word. And they found it written that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and tell everyone, go out and get branches and make booths and come in and and, and have this celebration. Verse 17, all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua, or Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. Day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is another of those Jewish feasts, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. If you know someone Jewish, they'll call it Sukkot. This happens on the 15th through to the 22nd or 23rd day of the seventh month. 
It's a festival where they, uh, it's kind of like camping, it's bizarre. I don't re- really see the attraction, but, and I know that one or two are with me in that, but, but basically they kind of collect branches and make booths on the roof of their house. Flat roofs, it works better, uh, rather than our roofs. Or, or in you know, the back garden, they just make a booth, and God says, all right, I want you to have a booth, and I want you to have food. Hey, that's a, that's a religious festival. We're camping, and we're eating. And that's basically what the Jews did. Why? Because God wanted them to remember that he had rescued their nation, their people, out of Egypt way back in the day. He'd brought them out of Egypt. He'd delivered them out of that. He'd saved them. And then he'd protected them for 40 years in the wilderness and then brought them into the land. And so, yeah, they're living in houses now, but God used to have them living in tents because he made them go camping for 40 years. It was a celebration of God's salvation. And he wanted them to remember. And so every year, on the 15th day of the seventh month, they were supposed to build these booths. And then for the next seven days, doesn't matter what responsibilities you've got, you're in the booth and you're having a party. Because God wants you to remember how kind he has been. And then it makes that comment that since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, they hadn't done it. That's almost a thousand years where the people of Israel on the 15th day of the seventh month had gone, and carried on as normal. And the 16th and the 17th, it doesn't matter. They just carried on. And every year, the reminder of God's goodness had been missing from their experience. That's kind of like the way we, we kind of forget what God does for us and we ignore God's word and, and we say, well, that's okay, I'm, I'm living. And we try to kind of generate our own joy. And we end up eating that kind of rubbish cake and, you know, youth crisps. When all the time God has got this incredible feast, if we will just remember that he's the one that has delivered his people. He's the one that has saved and made possible the celebration. Now, I just want you to notice in chapter 9 that this is not just a kind of a one day or even just a few days kind of an event. On the 24th day, so this is the day after that festival's over, the people were assembled with fasting and sackcloth. They just had a solemn day. They're still feeling solemn. They separated themselves from foreigners, stood and confessed their sins, the iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3 of chapter 9. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. It's like the the whole month, the story keeps repeating. Now it's three hours of Bible followed by three hours of confession. It's always tempting for us to say, you know what, we want to be God's people. Yeah, we want to hear God's word, absolutely. We want to understand it, sure. But don't let it make us feel uncomfortable. We'd we'd rather bypass the discomfort of feeling convicted for sin. And hey, you know, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we kind of think that we can bypass confession and get to joy and we end up at this card table eating this rubbish little feast when actually God has got an incredible feast of joy for us, both now and in the future, actual literally in the future, when we go to be with Jesus. That's what the Bible describes it as. An incredible banquet. He's got all of that for us. And how do we get there? It's through the doorway of confession. It's, it's through coming to God and saying, you know what? We've read your word and we feel convicted. It's shone a light into our hearts and what we see is not pretty. The selfishness, 
the self-absorption, the self-concern, the way we've thought about others, the way we've wished bad things would happen to people, the way that, that we've kind of manipulated circumstances, the way that you know, we've told lies in order to get something for ourselves, the way that we've hidden and, and tricked and all the stuff that we've done and maybe, maybe way worse things. Maybe things that, that don't just fit in a nice comfortable list, but things that if we were to admit them, either done them or thought them, we would just be profoundly ashamed. And God says, hey, you know, I know that. And I, I want you to have the joy of the Lord, and I want you to enjoy my salvation, and I want you to have everything that I've made possible for you. Now just confess your sin. Just confess your sin because it's already been paid for. There's no reason to hide it. There's no reason to skirt around it. There's no reason to pretend that, you know, hey, it's not so bad. Just confess it. Just come and say, God, you know what? My life's a mess. My heart's a mess. My my decisions are terrible. You know, like Andy said at the start, we're not faithful. God, I haven't been faithful. We haven't been faithful. We have not lived for you the way that we should. And instead of hiding from that, we're just going to present it to you. And you know what God says? God says, thank you. Thank you so much for, for telling me what I know, but actually acknowledging what is true. Because you know what? I've taken care of it. The whole story of the Bible is the story of God taking care of it. It's the story of God sending his son into this world to, to come to this world 2,000 years ago. And even though he never did anything wrong, he ended up dying on the cross famous image Jesus on the cross why was he there he was there because he wanted to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin for the things that you've done for the things I've done for the things you wished you could have done the things that I've dreamt of doing he died in our place to pay the penalty for it so that we don't have to pay that we can come before God and say God I've done this and we know we can know for certain that the response is not going to be right then you must pay But instead the response is, I know and my son has paid for it. And so I forgive you. God is just and sin has to be paid for and God's son has paid the price for all of it. Which means that as we come to God and as God's word profoundly moves us and shines a light into us, we can come to it, we can come to it with confidence. Not because we've been good, because we haven't. But because we know that he was good. And that he's died in our place and God has covered it all. And all he wants to do now is invite us into the banquet. Invite us into the joy of the Lord. Invite us into the fullness of what only he can give us. All he asks is that we humble ourselves and be real before him. I I don't know how Nehemiah 8 in particular has touched your heart today. Let me just remind you of the four characteristics that we've seen here because it may be that one of them or, or another just kind of woo, makes you think, well, oh, that's, that's kind of for me. The, the first one is that they gathered respectfully to hear God's word. What's your attitude towards God's word and towards gathering to hear it and to discuss it? Is that something that is a priority or something that's become unimportant? Maybe that's the the thing that God by his spirit is saying, hey, I'd love you to respond to this. Or, or maybe it's the second one, that the, 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 the they were helped to understand it. And maybe you say, well, I, I'm not into that study stuff, and you've kind of dismissed it. 
Maybe God's spirit is working in your heart today to say, hey, you know what? I'd like you to start taking understanding it seriously. I'd like you to understand my word to you. Maybe it's the third one. Maybe it's that deep sense of, uh, of conviction. And maybe you've tried to skirt around that and just go after kind of a nice experience with God and let's pretend sin isn't there. And maybe God is kind of putting a finger on that and saying, you know what? You're never going to experience the fullness of joy that is possible with me if you try to skirt around your sin. Bring your sin to me because I've paid for it on the cross. Maybe taking sin seriously the way God does is something that is needed for some of us. Or maybe that fourth one. Discovering joy. That as God's people come to God's word and read it and and hear it and understand it and confess all the sin that it shines a light on in our lives, we then discover a joy that is only possible because God has made it possible. And maybe some of us have been chasing the card table with the kind of yucky crisps on and those horrible cakes. Maybe that's been the joy we've been giving ourselves to instead of going for the joy that God offers.